0: nba fantasy nba hybrid podcast brought to you by jay lanuzzi michael kimball and kyle stein and today we're joined by writer editor craft beer appreciator minnesotan and founding editor of the under review a literary magazine with a sports slant the one and only terry horseman thanks for thanks for coming on the pod terry
1: thanks for having me i'm excited to be here
0: Absolutely. So anytime we have uh, fans, friends of the pod, writers on, uh, we'd like to ask them about not only their fandom, but also their journey to sports writing and sports literature. Um, I think that's something that everyone on this call, we really appreciate. Um, And as much as the games, we really enjoy the way people break down the games in their writing. Um, And you're certainly in that class. You just wrote a wonderful essay uh, for issue two of the flagrant magazine, which we wanna remind everyone to go support, buy that magazine, buy it from flagrant, they do wonderful things. Um. Uh, the art is wonderful. I love the cover uh, for the issue too. What is it? It's a a smash cake on a basketball. Yep.
1: Um, <laughs> Have your cake and eat it too.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's awesome. So yeah, tell us a little bit about this essay, which mm-hmm. um I'm thinking of, um I'm thinking of Ross Gay's newest collection of poetry, Beholding, which is a booklet poem on Dr. J. And it has uh, some similarities in the ways in which you weave personal narrative to larger historical cultural narratives. Um. And, you know, our own sense of fandom uh, and the mix of fandom and culture. So tell us about this essay, which is titled, This is an Essay About Prince and Dwayne Wade.
1: Right. And you had to lump it in with Ross Gay right away. So now everyone's (laughs) coming in with no expectations at all. Um, I I adore Ross Gay's work and I'm so excited to read that uh, new book from him. So that is uh, the highest praise possible. Jalen, thank you. Um, Yes, it is an essay that is called, This is an Essay About Prince and Dwayne Wade and Um, It's really it's about Princeton. It's about Dwayne Wade, but it's really about two nights in Minneapolis that as I uh, grew up and started to get more into writing and um, grew as a writer and my basketball fandom continued to grow as it does uh, every year, despite being a fan of the Minnesota Timberwolves, who uh, now as of uh, their last loss have become the team with the worst winning percentage in all of uh, American professional sports surpassing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, um, or fa- falling beneath the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They already had that mark in basketball and now they have it in all professional sports. So, uh, we did it. Wolves fans. We're, uh, we're <laughs> a number one or a number whatever. Um, so yeah, the essay is about, uh, the night that uh, Prince died in Minneapolis, April 21st, 2016. And, uh, the night that, um, I think Dwayne Wade really announced himself to the world, which was Marquette upsetting number one Kentucky in the 2003 regional final, the Elite Eight, which uh, took place in the Metrodome, RIP the Dome. Uh, You were the worst professional sports stadium ever, but I had a lot of great memories there.
0: And, and let, let me just jump in here to say like it, yeah. there's a butterfly moment w- in sports fandom all the time with like draft picks and everything. I think someone like Danny Ainge is in the uh on in the crosshairs at the moment for his like end of the end of the, the late first round picks he's making. But there are a lot of stories and a lot of reporting that uh Pat Riley he wasn't really on the Dwayne Wade train. He he was right. really more leaning toward Bosch or a big man. Um so I'm just thinking about you know how much you know that. Moment that Marquette performance meant to you as a Minnesotan, and how much, you know, Dwayne Wade's play meant to me as a Miami Heat fan, someone from Miami. And then thinking about the butterfly effect of potential that, like, you know, Pat Riley could have just not taken him. And what, what does that mean? What does that mean to my, my sports watching experience, my fandom, my entire, like, what I'm doing with my life, you know? Exactly.
1: There is a lot of, uh there's some crazy butterfly effect theories that can go in with that game because. And D Wade obviously had a spectacular year that season for Marquette. um, And that team, you know, was a pretty good team. That was, you know, Tom Crean uh, head coaching uh, the Golden Eagles before he got the job at Indiana. Travis Diener was a fantastic college point guard. You know, Steve Novak was on that team and ended up playing in the NBA for a lot of years. Uh, I don't think anyone expected to see what they saw that night. And I was 15 years old. I had been going to Timberwolves games with my dad for uh, you know most of my life, you know, um, and had you know watched you know college basketball. You know the, the <laughs> Gophers aren't huge here; they're you know kind of around, um, but it's not you know college basketball fever. So it was maybe the first time that I really realized that I was in uh, the presence of something special happening in a sports arena, and I didn't really have a rooting effort. Like, sure, everyone wants to see the upset, wants like the better story. But I wasn't going to lose sleep that night if, you know, Kentucky blew them out by 20 like everyone thought they were going to. So it was kind of that first, you know, when you're 15, you're old enough to, like, you know, have those opinions of the world and uh, be affected by something like that. Uh, It really did feel like I had witnessed something that I was going to remember forever and eventually, you know, tell grandchildren about and it was something that I kept coming back to, and then when I, you know, was in my late 20s and early 30s, you know, going to grad school for creative writing and, you know, trying to, you know, make writing my full-time vocation and, you know, writing about sports specifically, it was just one of those nights where I was like, I got to do something with this, I got to do something with this, and it never felt like something I could write about on its own. Um, so that's sort of where the Prince angle came into it. And the funny story about this essay is I had no idea that Prince actually said on record that Dwayne Wade was his favorite player until like two years of working on this essay. Like, <laughs> I literally, I was like, I, I, I love these two nights obviously because I lived them and I thought they were notable for how good the game was and just how truly exceptional that one night in Minneapolis when Prince died was just for, you know, uh, just civic pride and appreciation of his art. But I didn't, think I'd had a strong enough connection as I wrote this essay. And then one day I just Googled Prince Dwayne Wade and that came up and I was like, how did I miss this? (laughs) (laughs) With this happening, you know, when like Prince died, there's like millions and millions of tributes. Um, Everyone was talking about him. It was the middle of the NBA playoffs, which was when uh, uh, DUA got caught on camera crying uh, (laughs) quote unquote. He said he didn't. And you know, that gets touched on the essay. So I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it yet, but (laughs) I, I had no idea that Prince was on an Australian radio station talking about basketball and that Pr- Dwayne Wade was his favorite player. So a lot of people, you know, I, who I showed this to sort of thought, that's what I started writing it with. But like I was just kind of grabbing at things that were interesting to me and thank God I found that connection. Cause I don't think it's a complete essay that would make it through any editor's desk uh, without that comment from Prince. So I think the lesson there is to just, you know, keep, keep writing at the thing that interests you and, uh, Google might bail you out at the eleventh hour. So,
0: yeah, absolutely. So once again, that's a, this is an essay about Prince and Dwayne Wade that you can find in issue two of Flagrant Magazine. Please go out and buy that. And now I want to give a chance to either Michael, carl anyone, jump in, um, tell us your thoughts about the essay, and you know more broadly just sports writing and something that we, we all love here on the pod.
2: Yeah, as you know, this is a, a one of the subjects we we hit on from pod to pod and. I did, this is a beautiful sports essay like, thank you i i loved reading it i actually read it and I, I immediately went back to the beginning and i reread it it's beautifully structured it's beautifully written but the thing i probably appreciate most is just the, the um what do i want to say here the understated midwestern emotion that runs through this piece and it provides us context and buttress and foundation that allows all of these things to happen it allows the and I won't spoil it either it allows you to discuss Dwayne Wade crying or not in the way that he was or wasn't when that happened and the moment and, and there's something beautiful about the two pieces of subject, the two subjects here coming together as naturally as they did. And I'm not going to ruin another moment that comes at the end either, but it's one of the most beautiful moments of bringing things together that I've read in an essay is what is what Terry does at the end of this piece. So beautiful piece of writing. Um, I uh, dug more into Flagrant Magazine too. Highly recommend, they're going old school. You can you can go subscribe to it and they will mail it to you. So I love that. And I love the sort of awe and fandom that came out of the piece. And you've talked about that a little bit. I love how you've got it into the piece. Could you talk a, bit, a little about that and sort of how you translated, what is it for many of us, a kind of crazy fandom to writing that we could all understand and experience?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, Sports have always been a great container for stories, which is how I got into writing about uh, sports, I think, unintentionally when I was younger and why, you know, I keep writing towards um, that feeling today. And um, I think this also gave sort of an opportunity to be unapologetic and passionate about fandom in a sense that maybe a lot of Timberwolves fans uh, haven't felt the empowerment to be as i mentioned while we were uh chatting before hitting record that um you know it is you know one of or before the, we, it is the worst arguably the worst team in professional sports definitely the worst team in the nba um
2: yeah and owning your fandom o- like, owning you know, that too owning your fandom especially when it's that kyle and i have to do it with the pistons it's
3: right. hard
1: it is hard we three championships
3: though so it's not quite as I know, right i know i know i know it's- but
2: it's still hard like-
1: <laughs> yeah. Shout out wow. the bad boys. That's my favorite. <laughs> it's my favorite 30 for 30. Uh um, I love the, the, uh, you know, the Oh four Pistons. Um, I'm, I'm happy that they beat the Lakers in the finals and not the one good Timberwolves team I've ever watched in my life. Um, back in <laughs> KG's NBA season. Sorry, <laughs> but it is, I think it is significant and important that Prince got on my radar when I was a young child at a Timberwolves game. Uh, I say yeah. in the, essay my first basketball moment my first prince moment I will never believe these two baptisms occurred together uh accidentally uh not just because prince was a great basketball fan or that he loved to uh you know show up at Timberwolves games unannounced then Lynx games when uh, the Lynx came around I think in uh, late 90s early 2000s uh he loved being around the game but he he did that just at random shows in Minneapolis he would sort of you know, come in the, you know, community entrance, not tell anyone, and there'd always be like, a, oh, my God, Prince is here. And then, you know, as quick as he came, <laughs> he would disappear. Uh, but he he loved being uh, not just a native of here, but a citizen of the city. And I think the fact that, uh, that Prince was a Timberwolves fan is something that should be talked about more often. That's probably the second coolest thing the franchise has going for it after Kevin Garnett playing here for 12 years. Um, so yeah. I think just knowing that uh, it took—I wasn't, you know, super into Prince's music as a child or even really as a teenager. But when he died, and you know, social media lit up with just you know mini Prince obituaries. Everyone had their own Prince story. Uh, I went back to when he first, you know, was introduced to me, and that was by way of basketball. And that's a thread that I will be, you know, curious about. know always and i think it's a significant part of sports writing i think uh sports writing can get dismissed as you know lowbrow or uh just for jocks or people who want to nerd out about x's and o's and you know i i enjoy that content as well um as someone who loves every aspect of the game but i think it's a great way to you know uh highlight how it how sport can you know tell the story of how we how we grew up and how we interact with the world so writing about Prince and uh, just a player he loved and recalling it through my memories of being at Timberwolves games was just a natural place to start for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, And I feel like I sort of, I don't know. I feel like I've suffered from that sort of thinking as well as someone who's like both played sports and then sort of moved more, uh, more permanently into like a writing space, this idea that sports writing or writing about sports is not literary or does not have literary merit. Um, and, you know, I think that's still an insecurity that I have at times, but I think, you know, what what you can find is that, like, great writing is all about the same thing, right? It's about life and love and heartbreak and imagination, hope and all these sorts of things. And the best sports writing that is not X's and O's, right? There's great X and, X's and O's writing, but the best sports writing that is more sort of world-leaning or world-looking um, is also going to be doing those things. Um, so, you know, again, as Michael already said, I think this essay does a wonderful job of doing that. Um, you know, reminding us of the connections that, like, sports are life, you know, it's it's family, it's his connection with the father, it's his first experience, this experience with the father, it's um, the language around things, you know, uh, the language around the, I won't spoil it too much, but the little kitchen, I love that, I love the little kitchen. Oh,
2: yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, you know, I was tweeting about this today, that there's, like, a lot of language around baseball that's really interesting, mm-hmm. and just all these little things that, like, you know, we appreciate in literature, but they're, they're also in sports as well yeah
3: Yeah. you know as a midwesterner from different lakes and different (laughs) brews um i was hesitant at first to, to kind of generalize what i was reading as being particularly midwestern um but the sense was so strong um and you know for context um Right now I'm teaching this computer animation class and we're going through Pixar right now. And actually last week, my daughter um, came down with a fever. And of course, in COVID, we had to go get her tested and everything. And she's out of school for a couple of days. And I had to like um, keep up with work and watch the movies for my class. And so I watched Inside Out with her. And the, the film that we were watching for class this week was Up and they're both Pete Docter movies. Um, and I don't know if you know, but Pete Docter is also a Minnesotan. And um, I just felt such a strong kinship in like the type of stories and the type of affect and like the genuineness, the kind of like authenticity um, and like honestly, just like the proximity to one's own inner self, to like one's own emotions um, and things. And um, I'm just wondering, like, you know, it feels to me kind of um, takes a kind of courage to write that way Um, and, you know probably in your midwestern ways you you're going to be very modest about that but like <laughs> i i wonder if you just might talk about like just the process of of of, of writing like this i mean because the payoff um you know is is jalen and michael are both mentioning is is um really excellent um with like the the way it brings together a personal life in a historical moment um, and connects to you know all of these like commonalities that like a lot you know almost everyone like has you know with prince and with Dwayne wade just these like you know towering like popular culture figures
1: yeah i mean i think that is a question that i'm not even sure i'm qualified to answer because i'm not even totally sure how that sort of happens um this essay i've mentioned it's been what it was one of my the hardest essays i've ever written i think i wrote the first What ended up becoming the first lines that were included in it uh, that day that Prince died in uh, 2016 and honestly didn't finish until late this fall when it went to flagrant so that's you know over over four years of time, obviously, I was working on other things. uh, But yeah it was it was a very difficult essay not just because of you know, like the subject matter or the emotions, but just trying to get everything to fit together. Um, and I think I may have been hesitant to make it as personal as it became because I ended up rewriting the ending for it at the suggestion of the editors from Flagrant who are fantastic to work with and just reiterate <clears throat> how much everyone you know should go, you know, buy the magazine and support them. Uh, I believe they also have a podcast that's dropping uh, tomorrow. We're recording this on March 2nd, on March 3rd. So they continue to do great things. And just sort of encouragement from them to, you know, keep, uh, make sure I wasn't writing myself out of this. Yes, it's about (laughs) admiration for Prince and Dwayne Wade, but really it's, you know, me moving around in the world that uh, they've sort of built around me and my admiration for, you know, those sort of, you know, sort of two big performances. And I think just the way I got there was just by, you know, a lot of trial and error a lot of writing classes Uh, when I first tried to seriously write I'd say probably this was the year that Prince ended up dying Um, I had just started a creative writing and MFA uh, MFA and creative writing program and I was hesitant to write about sports I wasn't trying to write about sports uh, early and it kind of took about a full year into that program to really lean into it. Cause you know, I wanted to write literature <laughs> and I wanted to, you know, you know, write, you know, the, you know, the next great American novel, um, you know, this, that kind of stuff, this type of, you know.
0: And if you it. could, if you could t- talk about how you went from that moment of not wanting to write about mm-hmm. sports to like starting yeah. the under review, um, right. which is a place that is like geared towards sports and which is a place I think that I should say is like, is publishing literature you know it's literature but it's about sports and the people in it are accomplished and uh their stories are amazing their poems are amazing and so yeah i mean that's that's a leap right like how did you get there
2: and i'm not gonna say it the way either of you guys did but this is an (laughs) essay about prince and duane wade is literature it right. Like, <laughs> so let's let's just be clear <laughs> for sure yeah i,
1: I think you know is this my own mental blocks and yeah i think i'm very very proud of the under review any expectations that uh megan and i had when we co-founded it uh have been greatly exceeded by the uh people who have submitted their work which includes on this podcast jalen utzi who we nominated for a push cart because his poem was right. incredible um so That shows that, you know, our thought that uh, this type of literature, capital L, good literature around (laughs) sports does exist. Um, I had, uh, thankfully, I worked with a lot of great mentors when I was in the MFA program at Hamlin. Um, Shout out to my uh, primary advisor on my thesis, uh, Angela Pelster, who uh, is a great uh, essayist, writes a lot of incredible lyric essays hadn't read a ton of sports writing so it's interesting you know that angela really helped you know push me towards that um basically you know the thing she said is like this is one like you are intelligent about this and you can you know talk about it for days but also it's what you're passionate about uh it's you know you you ask in a lot of creative non-fiction workshops uh the question what is the essayistic question in an essay gets brought up a lot and i'm not even sure you know uh what that would be in you know in in this case uh about (laughs) prince and Dwayne wade Uh, I, i think it's more helpful when looking at someone else's work um but making sure that that's an interesting question that needs answering is what's more important rather than subject matter and angela also looked at me in one uh meeting we had where i was you know trying to talk about like all these other things besides sports I was going to write about. And she said, Terry, more people read sports illustrated than the Paris review. (laughs) So I think you have what a lot of writers wish they had. And that is a built-in audience. Like, Mm-hmm. A lot of, yeah. you know, we talk about how like, you know, I, I think, you know, independent bookstores are growing right now uh and doing, you know, better than we thought we, they would be, you know, back in 2010 when they started closing and things like that. But a lot of writers are terrified of, you know, how, you know, books are going to sell, uh, especially, you know, in poetry, there's not the money that should be there. And I, I wish that money existed. But I do think, you know, sports books, they have that sort of built in audience where you can reach people who are, you know, voracious readers and have, you know, that, you know, TBR list is just, you know, growing and growing and growing and almost toppling over. But you can also, you know, I know people who haven't picked up books in, you know, years who picked up uh, Kevin Garnett A to Z that just came out last week. Um, Obviously, I don't have (laughs) the clout that Kevin Garnett has, but you can, I think, sell a basketball book to a basketball fan who may not be a big reader uh, a, a little doubt. bit easier. Yeah. yeah and definitely, definitely. I think people who have sort of that skill or that interest and just passion and curiosity about sports that you know is bigger than just watching the games and you know spouting off hot takes on Twitter I would just encourage people to you know write towards that curiosity and see what comes up because yeah absolutely is, is it
2: possible that your essayistic question is in the title of your essay
1: <laughs> it, I think so I mean, I yeah. think it's there. So I'm like, <laughs> <Right>. what?
2: <laughs> this isn't, it's like, what? How? Right, yeah. I and think, then yeah, you go why, you go about amazing us <laughs> with how that comes together, though. That's one of the things that makes this essay work.
0: Yeah. 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 So uh, before we, I want to like close out our, our conversation on sports literature, I just want to say, I just want to plug again, Katie Heindel's Basketball Feelings uh, newsletter on Substack, some of the best um, sort of deeply felt sports writing out there. Um, this is also a shameless petition to try to hopefully one day get her on the pod um (laughs) and you know just um you mentioned uh the the epigraph for your story or this essay includes um, a piece from Hanif abdur uh, The Night Prince Walked on Water uh, from They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. And uh, Hanif abdur is now writing about basketball movies uh, in the Paris Review. So like talk yeah. about dream job. Right. Uh, <laughs> so if you want to read stuff that is like deeply felt and, you know, well thought out about sports and not about sports at the same time, definitely check that out. Uh, But we are the Real NBA Fantasy NBA hybrid podcast and we talk about the games themselves. Um, So now we are going to just kill a bunch of coaches that got fired. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what we're going to do. First, kill a bunch hear, of
2: GMs.
0: Yeah, yeah, maybe right. so. Kill a bunch of GMs and <laughs> their hiring processes. Yeah, um, there you go. But yeah, I wanna I wanna hear from Terry first about just like the experience of being a Timberwolves fan this year, and I guess more broadly, but particularly this year. And then obviously, you can give us your thoughts about um, the the firing of Ryan Saunders.
1: Yeah. Um, so this is. Uh, it's not surprising that this is hard to talk about. Um, I listened. Uh, I listened to the pod last week, and I think you guys covered the Saunders firing very well. Uh, just how bad the optics are, the lack of a process, and it did sort of seem like throughout the whole NBA, there was this you know sort of shock and awe that uh, not that Saunders got fired, which I think everyone saw coming, but within minutes there was a multi-year. Agreement with a different coach from another team's bench. And he was, you know, on his way to Minneapolis and was going to coach the game, you know, 36 hours later.
0: Yeah, it was crazy, too, because Woj tweeted out that um, Saunders was fired. And then Shams just jumped the gun and was like, and they're hiring Chris French, Chris right. Finch. And everyone's like, oh, wow, Shams is throwing haymakers out here.
1: Right. The the, the Woj versus Shams, uh, you know, battle is more interesting than any <laughs> basketball game I've watched in a long time. Um I do have to say, as you know, I think all of those emotions and reactions are right. Anyone who's been a fan of this team or is casually, or a little more than casually followed it, no part of me was surprised at how it uh, panned out because this is how processes work for Timberwolves basketball under Glenn Taylor. Uh, the second I had read that uh, someone speculated that Rosas wanted Finch right away in 2019, but Taylor, of course, yep. wanted Ryan. Mm-hmm. Wanted the story. Uh, I think the Timberwolves are just a masterclass in how uh, loyalty can destroy a professional sports uh, franchise. <laughs> I go back to when I was, a st- you know, getting my thoughts together for this pod and how, based in my entire sort of, you know, conscious life, I, I was born the year before the Timberwolves started, but for. All intents and purposes. I don't have, you know, memories that outdate the Timberwolves. And Glenn Taylor came in in 1994, saved the team from moving to New Orleans. So thanks for that, Glenn. <laughs> Since then, during the Garnett era, we wasted 12 years of who I biasly believe is the greatest power forward of all time. I can make that argument. I don't want to get us in the muck of that, though. But Kevin McHale signed Joe Smith a fairly mediocre player, decent player, was a good six-man, you know, rotation guy to any legal contract that Stern ended up uh, taking four draft picks in five years away from the franchise. The one pick they retained, they ended up using on NDEB, who played, I think, 44 minutes in the league. (laughs) That was a five-year span during the prime of Garnett's career. Kevin McHale didn't get fired. Glenn Taylor did not fire him. If that's not a fireable offense, then there is no fireable offense. And so Gerson Rosas comes in and as a GM probably wants his guy coaching the team. And he's taking over a team that had just fired a coach as an interim coach. It should be the cleanest. I hate to use this term in America today, but the cleanest transfer of power ever but he can't do it because he works for Glenn Taylor and I'm not trying to excuse Rosas here for the poor optics because the optics are terrible and he should be rightly criticized for it. And he has been, but when you work for Glenn Taylor, you have to do things a certain way. And that is hire the kid who is going to be the best story and keep it in the family. And then if it doesn't work out 16 months from now, you can get your guy. So I don't think Gerson should be excused for how poorly managed this is. And, you know, when you agree to work for the Minnesota Timberwolves, you make your bed and then you sleep in it. And that's just, you know, kind of how it works. But I wasn't surprised at all. Just learned that, Ryan was getting fired. He had to get fired at this point because they couldn't fire him before they were done playing Toronto, per you know, some league <laughs> rules. So I wondered how long was Ryan just a sitting duck? You know, how long had he just been a pig for slaughter? Uh when Since the decision he was, was hired, made? right? Probably. Probably. I mean, and
0: I mean, I, yeah, I, if they wanted to hire a different coach and then you only got hired because the, the the owner of the team wanted a good story that's not great for you since you know the gm is going to want to bring in the coach that they want to bring in And, you know, I mean, he, I don't, I don't know if he was necessarily put in the best position to succeed. I was reading, I was reading John Hollinger on this and Hollinger's point made a good point that if you're firing a coach in the middle of the season, you probably were thinking about it before the season ever started and you shouldn't, you should have done it earlier anyways. And so that seems to be the case here. That seems to be the case in the Lloyd Pierce situation. Um, But I mean, as you said, let's not excuse Gerson Rosas. And when we talk about the Hawks, let's not excuse Travis Flank, Gerson Rosas chose to build a team around D'Angelo Russell, like D'Angelo Russell and Cat. And Cat, I think, is a defensible position to build your team around. But right. building your team around D'Angelo Russell, I don't know if that's really all that defensible.
2: But this dovetails with the same conversation, right? They brought in Russell because Cat and Russell are great friends. Like, it's, it's right. the yeah. same thinking that leads you to poor decision making for that, for for team winning, at
0: least. It's the same thinking that had Glenn Tater, um petitioning andrew wiggins to play better if i give you this max contract will you be better Uh, okay yeah yeah i will i I
2: promise i got it i got it i'll do it which is also very
0: it's also kind of weird (laughs) and sick in some ways because it's like andrew wiggins was a first round draft pick and is averaging like 20 points since he entered the league like if you don't give him this max contract somebody else is going to give it to him he's earned the max contract even with like the poor advanced statistics and the poor impact metrics he's pretty much earned the contract by the 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 like dent of like how the NBA works, you know? Right. Right.
1: Right. So, I mean, I, I don't know if that goes into your question of what's it like to be a a Wolves fan now. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, it's not fun. Um, (laughs) Is it I
2: sickening? Think, Is it depressing? Yeah, Is it, I think like I get so disappointed watching Pistons games sometimes. Yeah, or during the draft, I'm like, okay, I guess I accept Killian Hayes, but Halliburton was on the list, and Halliburton then Halliburton was on the list. He's and then you're great, sort but... of like, okay, I guess Isaiah Stewart, but why didn't you take Bay before? Like Stewart was going to, like you know, and it just gets weirdly frustrating and right. Yeah, I start to hate them, even though I still love them. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? I, yeah. I feel like you must experience some of those things.
1: Absolutely. I, I get asked, you know, um, and I, I went to college at Oregon State, uh, Go Beavs. Um, So a lot of West Coast friends, um, a lot of people go to Oregon State from the Bay Area. One of my best friends from college is a Warriors fan. So I hear about mm-hmm. the Wiggins d trade a lot. Uh, <laughs> I hear, I, and I, you know, have lots of Blazers fans, friends, obviously, uh who you know aren't you know a championship team but hey having a team built around Damon CJ looks like a lot of fun Mm -hmm. um I heard I've heard from uh, a number of people that be that draft the great 2013 NBA draft that I think was the drunkest draft in NBA history (laughs) that uh CJ before the draft had absolutely killed a private workout with the Timberwolves and the Wolves opted to uh draft Trey Burke instead who they traded for Shabazz Muhammad and CJ is still mad about it. So I blazer fans. I don't know if any credit is due to the, the wolves, uh, you know, stiffing uh, CJ McCollum, but I really wish he was on our team.
0: Uh, I mean, never... talk about draft mistakes. They could have, they could have drafted Steph Curry. They passed on Steph Curry twice. Is, it, is not that Once, true? but twice. I've, I've
1: never heard that story, Jalen. Please, <laughs> please tell me more. I've, I've absolutely never heard.
2: And oh in
1: defense of David Kahn, the GM at that time, who took not only one point guard but two point guards ahead of Steph Curry
2: in a row
3: wasn't it in a row it was
1: in a row yeah, yeah, yeah okay five and six
3: <laughs> yeah johnny flynn that was a. that was oh, johnny, johnny flynn, flynn
1: because of uh how nice of a smile johnny had david Kahn <laughs> talked for years about johnny's smile um, <laughs> not that <laughs> yes, he was five a superstar name i love it man i, I was hoping I was honestly a Flynn fan just because I, like everyone, I watched that Syracuse, Connecticut six game overtime in the Big East tournament when the Big East was still the Big East. Another one of my favorite thirty for thirties, and Johnny was spectacular. And even his, I, I get in fights with this with Wolves fans, like when not this year, but like before the pandemic, like at the bars talking about the Timberwolves ever, like like oh Johnny Flynn was terrible, and I go Johnny Flynn ro- rookie Johnny Flynn was actually pretty good, and be like people don't remember that We're like whatever but johnny had a ton of you know injuries he had yeah a I think bad he had hip back. injuries he or something he had hip right? surgery yeah. like major hip surgery which really derailed his career he would not have been Steph but he he really knew how to play offense but anyway this is all <laughs> building to say i've never felt lower as a timberwolves fan than i do this year um
0: well okay let's see if we can give you some positive signs i Chris Finch seems to be a good coach, as I said last week on the pod. He has his coaching bona fides. Gerson Rosas comes from the the rocket school of thought and school of analytics, so I think the the Timberwolves will play an analytic-friendly game. So that means that they'll take care of the sort of low-hanging fruit. Towns hopefully will be empowered um, to play to dominate the ball more, to be the hub of the offense more, a la Nikola Jokic or someone like Bam Adebayo. And obviously, Towns is uber talented and extremely talented. So as long as he can stay healthy, uh, you know I think he's going to be an amazing offensive player. Hopefully, right. also like with him having the keys now that Russell is out, they'll just be like, "Sorry, bro, we, we figured something out while you were gone. You got to get in yeah. where you fit in." Um, and then also fantasy. This is sort of fantasy relevant, but also relevant to the real team. Uh, you have one half of the McDaniel brothers in the NBA, um, and the McDaniel's is are fun. Uh, they're really fun. They block shots. They make threes. They're athletic, um, and also, Jared Vanderbilt is kind of fun, entertaining, uh, good defensive player, and that's that's all I got for you. I no, was out no. <laughs> on Jared Culver from from day one. Right. No, please. But there are a bunch of young guys. Like, yeah. who
2: do you think could? Jordan so I McLaughlin think there's is hope. Good. There's hope. I like I, Jordan McLaughlin. He's on my dynasty team. It's nice right. to see him getting minutes. It is. He's good. You, you know, there's a. I think there's a fair amount of hope right. there. It may not reside with Culver or Kogi, but i'm seeing some flashes of some really fun play there
1: did you notice how much i perked up when Jalen mentioned jaden mcdaniels yeah (laughs) i I do i love jaden mcdaniels i think i think the wolves really found one in jaden mcdaniels but it's gonna take it's just gonna take so much more than that like on on the dane moore nba podcast today uh which is a podcast i'd recommend to everyone it's you know it's uh the timberwolves uh it's a timberwolves podcast on blue wire but talks about the whole league as well. Just, you know, great content. Dane mentioned that, you know, the excuses people have been making for the wolves, you know, it's team ravaged by injuries, you know, D'Lo missing a lot of time, Kat missing a lot of time, but at least like Kat and D'Lo's injuries. And these are the two guys you're building this team around. And even if D'Lo or doesn't work out like with the money and the contracts, you have to build around those two Mm -hmm. for at least for the next few years. One of them has usually been playing and I understand Delo's is not an A-list uh, all-star, but Cat is, or he at least has to be. And mm-hmm. the team's record in the last 34 games that Cat has played in is four and 30. Four and 30. And I know Cat has been through hell, probably had the worst year of anyone. Yeah. I'm not, this isn't an anti-Carl uh, Anthony Towns rant. I, I love Cat. I am so happy he's on the team, but the team has not found a way to maximize cat. They haven't found a way to win around cat. And the injury excuses only go so far with me. I'm like, I think the most like wolves apologists will bring up, you know, how hard the COVID year has been on the Timberwolves and how hard injuries have been. Every team has those problems. The Timberwolves aren't playing in some, you know, alternate universe where they're the only ones set back by a pandemic and by injuries. It just yeah, like it seems like it continued. seems
0: like Rosas's plan was to put a ton of shooting around Cat and to try and juice up the offense rather than the defense. But With like, guys who can't shoot. <laughs> yeah, but like really, the only person who's really done that has been Malik Beasley, um, and now he's he's out uh, due to suspension. So it's right. sort of like you know whatever momentum they have is sort of getting derailed at the moment. But people like Jake Layman or uh Hernan Gomez you know they're they just they haven't worked out at all and they they're not shooting super well and they're not good on defense and then the guys who are good on defense like a Kogi and Culver can't shoot at all so it's like they sort of tried to walk a path that they're they're not really able to walk so no. yeah it's tough but I mean this is the other things so the last question I want to ask about the Wolves is are they going to further shoot themselves in the foot by uh choosing not to tank because obviously Chris Finch no. is like, I'm a new head coach. I'm not trying to give away wins, uh, but it's Cade Cunningham no. season. It's gotta exactly. be Cade Cunningham. They,
1: season. they have, they have to tank. And I understand why people are like, Oh, I don't believe in that, you know, lifestyle or approach, or whatever. They have to tank. If they, if they win, if they somehow like play 400 basketball the rest of the year, which essentially would ensure that they lose the first round pick. And then we're just running it back with this, this weird roster that I don't even think is Finch's ideal team. And in a year where the cap might go down, it might stay the same. It's definitely not going up and they don't have cap space.
0: Yeah. They're almost in the luxury tax.
1: And even I I think what I want uh, Finch to do is just experiment as much as he can learn as much as he can from going, you know, Five and thirty, or whatever, they're gonna go the rest of the way, which is, you know, might even be optimistic based on what the last eight games have looked like. Uh, That's
2: worse than what they've gone so far. Right. Just to be- well, they're seven. <laughs> they're seven and twenty-eight.
1: Credit where credit's due. Um, right. I mean, come on. And, you know, I, and, and it, you know, say D'Lo comes back um, at the end of this four to six weeks that he was out. I would love to see D'Lo and Cat, you know, get out in the open floor and look good and get reps in playing winning basketball. Yes. I understand that that helps it does not help more than keeping your top three pick, which I understand we don't even guarantee we'll have by taking uh, best case scenario. It's still a 40% chance. Um, I mean, I'm not too worried about five,
2: it. Let's see, I was just looking at the standings. There's something like five. No, there's one, two there, Yeah. They're six games up on like they have a six game cushion to stay in those bottom three.
1: Yeah. yeah. It'll
2: be yeah. hard to get that
1: it, It'll be hard to climb out. And just, I know we're ending with the Wolves um, real quick. I I don't think we can go through an entire Wolves segment without talking about Anthony Edwards.
0: Oh um, my God. I can't believe I did that. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Ant-Man, I, I think,
1: <laughs> and that's been another hard thing with like just Timberwolves fans this year. I think Timberwolves fans are just exhausted with like, trying to know where to put their energy and like how to exist just because it's been so depressing and so discouraging. And I think we can find solace and be saying like, Hey, LaMelo is clearly the top player in this rookie class. I also think, yo, everyone's saying this draft class was trash going into the draft. I, I think are going to be eating their words. Cause you know, the top, Four guys are all playing pretty well. You got, we mentioned Jaden McDaniels, who the Wolves found at the bottom of the first round. There are lots of rookies playing really Halliburton's well. Halliburton's playing Hall- Halliburton, Halliburton, Halliburton Payton, is incredible. Pritchard, right? and Pritchard, Pritchard <laughs> Bain, went to Oregon, right? so I'm having a hard time complimenting him, but Emmanuel quickly is good. Patrick <laughs> yeah. Williams is looking great. And I, I think you can mention, or Wolves fans can be honest, but like we should have taken LaMelo. It is understandable that they didn't take him because they were banking on having D'Lo, and I don't know how Lamelo and D'Lo would play together. Um, but also, how, what's how, the difference be between gone. Edwards and How <laughs> Edwards exactly. and Ball in
0: terms of playing with D'Lo. Yeah. Um,
1: you know, but I think Ant is an ab- he's an absolute joy of a person, which is just refreshing. And I hope this franchise doesn't ruin that. And I think when you're dealing with a 19-year-old, you know, I, the discourse around when he had that dunk against Toronto and Nate. Oh, yeah, they, we got to talk and,
0: about I got the tweet lined up for you. We if We want tweet to tweet lined it, up for you. I,
1: I don't like what, you know, Nate Duncan tweeted uh, that night, just about efficiency, because Ant has had some really good games uh, from an analytics standpoint, and he's 19. That's going to go back and forth. Right. And I agree that everyone can, you know, chill and just be like, hey, this dunk was sick. Let's have fun with it. Uh, but the discourse that went all like the other way <laughs> <it> was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. got to be a little much where it was just one of those days where everything on basketball, Twitter was a waste of time. Um But yeah. Ant, Ant gives me hope. Ant gives me joy. Um, I do think he may not be the franchise savior type player that LaMelo looks like he could be. Uh, but I think he has all the tools to be a really good player in the NBA and maybe a star in the NBA. Pro- probably not superstar, but I think he could be a star player that, you know, makes, makes a lot of plays. And if they can figure the rest of the roster out, you know, a dude who fits in with, you know, a playoff contending team. Um, I absolutely think he has that in him and in ways that by the end of the six years of Wiggins, I watched in Minnesota, I absolutely did not believe Wiggins had anymore.
0: Yeah. Anthony Edwards is super athletic. Um, I've been surprised with his playmaking flashes. He's a pretty good passer. Um, and yeah as you said he's a joy to watch both on the court and off the court he's sort of the unifying force of NBA Twitter everybody loves Anthony Edwards uh, comments in the media all his virtual all his zoom uh, press conferences are like must see TV Um, and yeah I was sort of the one who kind of wanted to talk about this Nate Duncan tweet like Nate Duncan went on uh, I think he went on Ethan Sherwood Strauss podcast House of Strauss with Anthony Slater and they were talking sort of Wiseman versus LaMelo um, and he was sort of kind of doing a wrap-up or like explaining the tweet or whatever and he was like people are making a huge deal about this and he's like i i thought about the tweet for two seconds before i sent it and i get that and i respect that and i don't and i don't i don't think he he certainly didn't expect to get the reaction that he got even the initial reaction before it really got out of hand but i mean i also don't think it's fair to say that like he was doing a thing, right? Like, I think he was doing a thing, right? Yeah. He's not a, he's not an Anthony Edwards guy. I listen to, I'm subscribed. I'm a total access sub- subscriber. So I know what he says. I listen to the pod and like, he is clearly, he has been pretty vocal about not believing in Anthony Edwards and preferring LaMelo. And I think he was doing the thing that sports writers, sportscasters do things that I'm sure I'm doing all the time of being like, here's a dude that I, you know, took, had a take that I didn't believe in, who's not playing well. So, and he was getting a lot of attention. So let me jump on that attention. You know, let me send a tweet that says, hey, look, I was right. And also oh, yeah. like all you people <laughs> yeah, are sort right of right there. Like
2: it's right getting, there. <laughs> getting swept
0: up in this thing, in this dunk, but he's still not very good. And so it's like, yeah, dude, you did a thing. And the internet told you, no, <laughs> the internet rejected it, you know, well, and I mean, like on the base level, I think that's fine where everyone else took it with like dunking on nerds and analytics and all that sort of stuff is like, you know, not great. And I do think there's- there is probably like real conversations to be had about like watching sport as culture uh, versus watching sport as like some measure of efficiency. I think Nate Duncan likes basketball or whatever, but I think, you know, broader, I do think that is a real thing of like, just who, who um, you know, who's like the ways in which people are watching the, watching the game.
2: Right. There's a, 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 I think one of the big things that was missed in the tweet, or you know and Nate Duncan not thinking about the tweet is just the pure amazing Awe that most viewers experienced when they watch that happen, or the pure joy of somebody dunking like that. I've said it a ton of times on this pod. When I watch Jared Allen dunk, I just smile. It makes me happy. There's a kind of enthusiasm and joy there that is part of the reason I love basketball because basketball has hundreds of opportunities for that to happen in any particular game, more than. Most, maybe any sport, when I think about it, and that was what was missed in there. I mean, I think you can be a fan of the game and be a fan of analytics and statistics. I love reading the box score, but right. that got lost in the Nate Duncan tweet. Mm-hmm. So what I want to say is
3: that I am just dreaming of a day when nate duncan can have a negative take on a first round pick that my team gets and i say that (laughs) in the context of you know you were just talking a little bit earlier terry that you know you you thought that you know they really should tank at this point and get another uh you know number one overall pick and i'm like how many do they need i know they didn't i know they didn't draft all of them but they had wiggins and they had you know carl towns and they have you know Anthony, Anthony Ed Bennett Edwards. too. No. So can't, Anthony can't Bennett, technically number one, one overall to, pick. Yeah. Well, I don't. Can it don't, be our turn? The best draft pick the Pistons have had, like in since that I can remember. I think you know Darko, the answer, Kyle. You can't. It's
2: Darko. You don't get America. a turn. You're not getting well, a turn. Well, when, like, this I, is the
0: year.
3: No, when it's I, not gonna happen. We I'm need sure it. It's not gonna happen. We need it. We've been getting like. Eighth or ninth to 11th, somewhere in their overall picks, just like over and over and I mean, over again. And they haven't turned into anything. Although KCP did just get a ring last year. I do K- like it. Cade,
0: Cade and uh, Tyrese Halliburton would have been a real nice combo, but oh, you messed man. up the first one already. So I, I was
2: see. telling them.
1: <laughs> about 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 this, I will say yes. The Wolves have had uh, a number of number one overall picks uh, through the years. Um, it hasn't really done us a, a good amount, you know. Trading Kevin Love for. Andrew Wiggins and Anthony Bennett, technically, uh, or <clears throat> actually, that was the other one that one they pick- had Anthony Bennett. At Anthony Bennett. Point, yeah. <laughs> I will say I do have to point this out because I am a self-loathing Wolves fan. I just need everyone to know how miserable we are all the time. The Wolves have still never ever moved up in the lottery. The Carl Anthony Towns lottery, <laughs> oh, no, worst record. And last year, <laughs> with the new with the new odds, uh, they were you know tied with everyone they've still never gone up above their draft slot. I believe every of the other 98 years the team has been in the lottery, they've moved down at least a spot or two. So, um, and I don't even care if the Wolves get the number one pick this year. They just need to have a top three pick. It's a top three protected pick. If it's four or later, it goes to the Warriors. If they don't get anyone, then it's going to be really hard to see a cat-centric Wolves roster staying together because I think another season of just this abomination is going to be, uh, is going to be the you know, straw that breaks the camel's back. So yeah. if the Pistons get number one in Cade Cunningham and we can get number three and bring Jalen Suggs home, I'm okay with that too. Um, I just <laughs> and, and, wanna... that
2: the T Wolves never have moved up. It has to be a pretty big statistical anomaly. You know, yes. theoretically, you have to you would move up half of the time. I think or, I was or, or yeah,
1: but you... I was probably like 26 or 27 the last time that I truly believed the NBA lottery was rigged and <laughs> right. like that level of conspiracy theory uh, was, was. Harry, you've got to, co-
3: I've got another pod episode planned. I have, I I'm, I'm <laughs> deep in NBA conspiracy theory, sort of oh, like God. folklore um, and because there, there, you know, there are just some things that are not quite right. And we all kind of sense it. (laughs) And I think that, you know, if I were going to like masterfully manipulate a league, I would do it in such a way that I would leave people always a little unsure, Mm -hmm. just basically exactly where we are right now.
1: I I do believe the 1985 NBA lottery, the first NBA lottery that got the Knicks Patrick Ewing was rigged. I believe the frozen envelope. The frozen theory, envelope. I believe it. I believe that a hundred percent. Just because it's now now it's all feels like it's some like the NBA lottery is an event that would be impossible to rig. There's too many people in the room. There's too many people watching it. But the first year they did it, it's just this massive rotating bingo glass orb with like envelopes in it it would have just taken one guy being like all right i'm gonna make sure the next one is super cold so that they know which envelope they're grabbing um it just it just makes too much sense to me it's it's so dumb that it's brilliant that's why i believe that one but
0: <laughs> all right so um the let's move on to another coach <laughs> firing let's give terry some relief let's stop talking about Lamelo ball who is oof. thank you i appreciate it <laughs> doing things maybe we'll get to we the can talk
1: big... about lamella ball just don't remind me that he could have been a timberwolf
0: <laughs> maybe we'll get to the big gym conversation in in the bay area uh but the atlanta hawks fired lord lloyd pierce i believe they are 14 and 20 right now let me double check that uh yes they are 14 and 20 right now they are in the 11th seed in the east they have expectations or had expectations to make the playoffs this year. Um, Nate McMillan has taken over as the interim coach with Lloyd Pierce's approval. Um, Kyle and Michael, I know you all had thoughts about this and, you know, we're saying that uh, uh, Lloyd Pierce got a, a, a raw deal. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think away. he
2: did for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, and the most basic reason here is I don't think there's been a healthy Hawks team this entire season. I don't, you know, they brought in these new free agents and spent some money on that. I don't think there's been a whole team at any point. Um, I'm just sort of running through and And so... I mean, I don't think Lloyd Pierce ever got a real shot to actually win with this team. And the conversation the Hawks were having here, you know, about making the playoffs and all that, they were talking about that last year, too. And So, I don't know, this feels not unlike the Minnesota Timberwolves situation in a sense. Like, this seemed as if it was going to happen, and it was just a matter of when. I'm not sure Lloyd Pierce ever got a fair run here. I mean, you know,
3: I think that expectations are too high for Trey Young, um,
2: that I
3: don't think that the Hawks are as close as what, um, I mean, I I guess as close as even what Lloyd Pierce thought. I mean, Lloyd Pierce said that he really thought they were a playoff team, which was probably like, you know, somewhat poor expectation setting, um, uh, you know, um, for the organization Um, and the organization believing it too, I think is, you know, poor expectation setting. Um, They they don't seem to be there. They might, you know, especially with this new playoff format, they might be able to like squeak in. But um, I think like even injuries aside, um, it was if they make the playoffs, I feel like that was a good outcome for them. You know, as in, like, they kind of exceeded expectations to do that. Um, one of my other reactions to it was that, um, you know, I, I, I really wonder... With the optics of this, how the organization lives with it and whether they're ever able, to, in a sense, to live it down. I know when we saw them hire Nate, Nate McMillan as an assistant coach, we thought that the writing was on the wall. I think we talked about it in our pod before the season. Um, but you still, you know, you. you You see what Lloyd Pierce is doing, you see him as a young coach, you see the way that he's interacting with the community. Um, And you see. um, I was going to say you see the buy in from his team, but he did have kind of like notable um, like dust ups with Trey Young, you know, for instance. Um, But, you know, you basically just you assume that he's going to get more time. Um, And I'm not the only person to think this, you know. a couple of coaches came out afterward. I know anytime that a coach is fired, all, you know, all coaches kind of have it in their best interest to side with the coach. Um, so, um, you know, in a sense, you can always take that with a certain grain of salt. But um, I thought some of the points that Rick Carlisle brought up, you know, like the, the 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 fact that Lloyd Pierce gets fired the day after Black History Month is just like like terrible optics i mean like um yet another black coach is fired and then it's the day after black history month almost you know whether they were waiting or not it's going to appear as though you were waiting until after black history month and he of course brings up that um that he was the chairperson for coaches for racial racial justice that he was um he was the first coach in the NBA to petition and then, um, you know, get the the um, arena um, as a voting venue, um, you know, during the COVID pa- pandemic, which was, you know, integral to um, Georgia flipping blue. And uh, like, um, I just wanted to quote this, this end part because it was a very personal reaction that Carlisle had. He said, quote, Lloyd is a great young coach. He's a trusted friend of the coaches association and just really feel for him and his family. He just had a baby last week. I mean, this is just insane, but one of the real bright shining lights in our organization. And once again, a great young coach who I'm certain will have more opportunities, but very surprised the way this developed, you know, like, um, I just wonder if the, the, the Hawks, um, you know, they have to like worry about free agents. They have to worry about like bringing in other outside talent at, at, at any point. And, um, you know, even if this was telegraphed with Nate McMillan, I, I wonder what this looks like a year from now.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there in this situation. You know, I'm someone who I think I watched, you know, I don't know, 80 to 90% of the Hawks games last year. Um, you know, Trey Young is one of my favorite players in the league. Uh, I've been watching more LaMelo and Steph this year, but, you know, still, you can see the player archetype. Um, and so, you know, I have a, I have some sort of varied thoughts on this. Like, I agree, like the optics look bad. And it certainly is bad, as we were saying with the, with the Wolves situation. It seems like, you know, Lloyd Pierce was on the hot seat from the moment he got the job. Like, it just seemed like there wasn't really... Um, ultimately all that much buy-in from Trey Young. At the beginning of the situation, there were all these like noted rifts that they had and arguments that they had. And then by the end of the situation, it seemed like other players had sort of tuned him out and he'd lost control of the locker room or sort of respect to the locker room. But it just, you know, it just seems like between them being in a tanking situation early on and then them having the huge expectations to jump up into the playoffs this year, he was really put in a bad situation um, and it feels like, again, a situation where, um, you know, Travis Schlank is Lloyd Pierce's boss. Travis Schlank is not going to fire himself, so he's going to fire Lloyd Pierce when, you know, if we want to look at the facts, Travis Slank took Trey Young over Luka Doncic, and he got, you know, DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish out of it, but, like, they'd be better off if they had Luka Doncic. Like, that's just, that's just a reality. And, you know... You know, I'm sure the fact that like uh, Cam Reddish was one of the people who seemed to really not, you know, hit it off well with Lloyd Pierce, and the, the report said that he felt like he was being picked on uh, when they were talking about his mistakes. I'm sure the fact that Travis Lank, you know, bet pretty big on Cam Reddish, um, that probably had something to do with Lloyd Pierce's firing as well. And yeah, I mean, I think the timing is just really bad. It almost seems like they were waiting until he got back from you know, his leave uh, to attend to his wife and his newborn child to fire him. Like they're like, well, we can't fire him while he's away uh, taking care of his newborn. So we'll wait to get him back. But like, you know, we have the added benefit of Nate McMillan taking over while he's back, who we brought in this year, a veteran coach, you know, more veteran than the coach that we actually have who just got fired um, from being a head coach. You know, as we said, as you talked, as we talked about, like they were clearly telegraphing that like they had plans of if this goes awry. We can fire Lord Pierce, put Nate McMillan in the coach's seat, and then we'll, like, at least, you know, the boat will stay afloat until the end of the season.
3: It's also like they spent their free agency bringing in Rajon Rondo and Danilo Gallinari. I yeah, mean, that's like-
0: another hit on Travis Schlank. Like, the, all the all the people that he brought in, all the people that Tony Wrestler spent all his money on that's making him anxious to make the playoffs, uh, Chris Dunn, Rajon Rondo, um, uh, Gallin- Gallinari... Onyeko Kongu, the draft pick, everyone has been either injured or ineffective. Yeah, they all
2: played very limited minutes compared to what they might have if healthy or uh, and, yeah
0: and you could say you know you don't expect Bogdanovich to get an avulsion fracture fracture and miss this much time you don't expect deandre hunter to get an uh an mcl i think uh, the injury and miss this much time but rajon rondo playoff rondo is a thing uh, also regular season rondo is a thing it's not good regular right. season rondo is not good this is yeah, a well-known it's the only fact.
3: reason why we have the name playoff rondo
0: right? yeah it's like <laughs> what why would you bet on why would you bet on regular season Rondo as your backup point guard? And then Chris Dunn, I mean, Chris Dunn has been out the entire season. Did they not know that this injury was, uh, was out there when they signed him and then Gallo, like if you're bringing in Gallo for that kind of money, your process, I think is wrong because Gallo's a one-way player. He, along with Steven Adams were the two people, uh, who really didn't look great in OKC in the playoffs when they were playing, uh, the Rockets. They both looked pretty aged, and Steven Adams has bounced back a bit, and Gallo just hit 10 threes and had, like, 36 points the other night, but he does not move well, and if you're trying to make the playoffs, you probably want to be pretty good on both ends, and Gallo's not going to help with defense.
1: It's it's one of the weirdest rosters in the NBA, and um I, I like Trey Young a lot, too, Jalen. I don't want to pretend like I've watched 80-90% to 90% of Hawks games, <laughs> so... <laughs> I haven't seen the team in action as much as you, but if you're talking about making the playoffs and it's this new format, you're currently one spot out of the play in tournament. That is exactly where this team should be. Uh, so Lloyd Pierce paying yep. for that with his job. Yep. Um, Obviously. I mean, professional coach firings uh, in sports are hardly ever fair or what we, you know, our idea of what fairness is, but the expectations that this team should somehow be better than what Lloyd Pierce has taken them to is just bonkers to me. Like it's looking at this roster and where they are. It's like, yeah, that's, that's where this team would be, especially, especially with Bogdanovich. I think that's what's held. His injury has held them back the most, but I don't even see, you know, the benefit of moving on from Pierce uh, in this moment.
0: This is how bad of a job, and again, maybe they did this on purpose because they were basically trying to tank last year. But this is how bad the backup point guard situation is. Uh, regular season Rondo is way better than what they had at backup point guard last year, which yep. was which was <laughs> Evan Turner's uh, reanimated corpse. Like, it's just, he was awful. He, he was, they had no backup point guards. They had nothing. Anytime Trey Young was off the floor, it was just a complete disaster. And it's like, Really, Travis Slank, you thought this was a good idea to go into the season with no quality backup point guards and things were just going to work out one of the one of, if not the most important position in the league. Like, I don't know, like anyone who's like upset about this firing and feels like it's a situation where Travis Slank is like covering for his own butt and like, you know, buying time so that he doesn't get fired. I don't think you can really argue with that. Now, all that said, you know, John Collins is really good. Trey Young is a flawed player, certainly, but he's still really, really damn good. Uh, Clint Capella is playing really well. DeAndre Hunter was playing really well before he got injured. So that core is good, but they certainly, I don't think they've necessarily built around them super well. Obviously, you know, I think we can probably still hold out some hope for Cam Reddish and Kevin Herter has been solid, but I just think that like with a player like uh, Trey Young as the point guard and with a player like DeAndre Hunter there... Kevin Herter is probably not really the the type of player uh, that you want alongside Trey Young. You probably want someone who's a better defender um, and who's just going to be happy, you know, spotting up for shots and cutting to the basket and, you know, maybe doesn't really need the ball in his hands much. So I don't know, like I, I'm hopeful, like I'm getting sort of anxious about the fact that like, you know, the media is gonna. I mean, the media is already kind of turning on Trey Young, but like I feel like things are going to take a turn for Trey Young where people are going to start asking, you know, is he the problem? It, will he be the reason that guys don't want to come play in Atlanta uh, because they don't want to play with his sort of ball dominant style? And I've talked about this before. I think he's trying to make changes to his game. He's shooting less threes. Um, you know, he's trying to play in a different way, he's, but he, he has to stop deactivating off the ball. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that improves. Um, all right, so I think we have I don't know how we're doing on t- on time, Kyle, but anything else uh that you wanted to say, Michael? You you threw out a bunch of uh culture topics. I feel like this is the all-culture episode of the Shot Tower pod. Uh you threw out the big jim nickname that uh Barnett gave to <laughs> James Wiseman. Uh you mentioned uh we mentioned the Nate Duncan tweet and also the John Hollinger tweet, sort of railing against uh uh, Demontis Sabonis' all star pick, um, and then the KD and Cash Doll fight on Twitter.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all of that, as you guys know, I love everything around the NBA. I love the jerseys, I love the, the Prince jerseys in Minnesota, still one of my favorites. Bring them back,
1: bring them uh, back. Wolf. <laughs> I,
2: I, I wish they're really expensive if you try to buy one online, they uh, are, yeah. um, anymore. Um, but I did have a thought. Uh, to bring to sort of bring us all back to it uh, with a cultural rap to uh, the the this pod. What would be Prince's? What is the all Prince, not all star, all Prince starting five? Oh
0: my God! Jayshon Tate is in it for sure. Just, <laughs> All right. I'm just going to start there. Tate is in That it. is
1: an incredible question. We could I want to put do... Muggsy Bogues in because, you okay. know, oh, little we're doing guy. Historical. We're doing you pick historical. Pick anybody. Anybody okay, you we, want. We got yeah. to go,
0: we gotta go present, present day and then <laughs> historical. So present day. I want to throw
2: Muggsy cool. Bogues out. That
1: was my I'm, one. I'm cool. I'm cool with Muggsy as the starting point guard on the historical Prince team.
0: For yeah, sure. <laughs> Anthony Edwards. It's, I feel like Anthony Edwards, his spirit would land him on the team possibly. <laughs>
1: Yeah, maybe it's 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 just hard for me to be think that he's earned enough as you know uh, <laughs> as a player in Minnesota. Um, right. here's I another mean,
2: suggestion to keep it rolling. Historic right. Walt Frazier. Yeah,
1: Absolutely. I think yeah, Clyde. I think for sure. <laughs> Doctor J. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I would. I I, I want to put Garnett in there just because yeah, he was the number one. You know, Timberwolves player ever um, is the number one. Uh, but would have probably given Prince the most, you know, happy memories of, uh, you know, sitting at Target sure. Center for NBA games. Um, for present day, ooh, I'm having a hard time with this. I, I, because I want to say Lamelo and Jalen said Anthony Edwards, <laughs> and I feel we like could we could have to, them both. Yeah, we could have them both. Yeah, I guess Lamelo at the one and maybe Anthony yeah. for the three. Yeah, uh, probably works. Um, yeah.
0: Like this is the Kelly Oubre
1: at the three. Uh, this team it probably need Oubre yeah, for yeah. sure. Has to be on, is, on it. This I love is this really <laughs> the this
0: is really the all vibes team. That's what yeah. Is. All right. <laughs> like. yeah, the Prince really team is the is, all vibes team.
1: It really is about vibes. Um, I'm trying to think who's holding down the front court.
0: You know. Yeah. PJ Tucker get maybe? any love? Well, think, Jokic, is Jokic weird enough? Like, does he fit somehow? I think Jokic somehow does fit.
1: I all think because
2: right. Prince the game fits
1: right. P- like Prince loved the wolves. And I know Prince also, uh, there's, you know, some evidence that Prince loved the bulls during the, the Jordan era as well. So um, Prince might say F you guys, MJ's on the all Prince team, obviously, because he's the greatest ever. I'm yeah. the greatest ever. you well, um, so can't
2: forget Wade. Wade yeah. It's friend. gotta be, it's gotta be D
1: Wade <laughs> in, in this case. It'd be weird if I didn't put D Wade <laughs> on him.
2: Uh,
1: So, yeah, I mean, I think, but like Jokic is like kind of a weird, like goofy dude and he is a great passer. And I think Prince is the type of dude who'd have an appreciation for great passers. Um, You know, Prince being a a, a former point guard himself at a, you know, Minneapolis central high school uh, back, back in the day, I think he appreciates someone who knows how to distribute the ball. So I would think, you know, Isaiah Thomas historically would have have a case to be there you know, I yeah. was going to, I was about to think Magic Johnson, but one thing I did read, read about Prince was that he actually despised the word, not the player, the word magic. <laughs> journalists tried to describe Prince as magical all the time and that he just hated it. So wow, I feel like he hated it enough to not have Magic Johnson or that probably screws Penny Hardaway and Shaq too, because uh, they're I mean, just classic magic players.
2: That, <laughs> that tidbit's worth the whole pod right there.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, Magic was uh, this is this is in his uh like somewhat published memoir what he uh, co-wrote with Dan uh, Dan Pipe and Bring that uh, um, just you know got was in production in the last year of his life but I think the one chapter they did finish was he talked about how magic was Michael Jackson's brand and people were constantly comparing Prince and Michael Jackson throughout their whole careers and Prince was about transcendence so any player who you think transcendence that's probably who Prince would want on the all Prince team. And then Prince would probably want to scrimmage them at Paisley park with, you know, Charlie Murphy (laughs) and, and Nikki free and, you know, serve them victory pancakes, you know, all over again.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. All right. Well, that's a great place to close it out. Um, so, but before we close it out, I want to give Terry a chance to plug uh, all the things, you know, the under review and also with the call that you recently right. did a podcast. So
1: for sure. Yeah, I'd say read, read the under review. You can find all of our stuff at underreviewlit.com at underreviewlit on Twitter and Instagram. We're open for uh, submissions right now. Uh, so send us your work. If you have any uh, <laughs> sports writing of, you know, any genre, um, we would would love we'd love to see it. Uh, We'll be publishing a podcast episode of uh, the under review presents with the call, which is our in-house podcast. Uh, It's a bonus episode of the uh, issue three launch reading that we recorded last month. That also includes Jalen Utzi and uh, his great, uh, his great poem guitar center. So that will be dropping tomorrow morning. Uh, Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as well at Terry Horstman, T E R R Y H O R S T M A N. Um, don't think i have anything coming out it's hard to keep you know track what what am i doing what is time uh <laughs> it's march 2021 march we're still in march 2020 so uh but yeah go go buy flagrant magazine follow them on twitter as well at flagrant mag the, the it's honestly was one of the biggest thrills of my you know writing career just to just to get finally get that physical issue in my hands and open it up and to see how breathtakingly beautiful that you know publication is um i'm really happy that they're doing that work and and keeping print alive because it's uh because that's you know important and um other than that just pray for the timberwolves to keep their pick and uh <laughs> that will that will get me the link season when you know things are, are looking up so bring, bring me back on the pod when the links start playing and i'll be a lot happier i promise
0: there we go there <laughs> we go all right that's it for us here at uh, shot tower hq we are turning off the Phantom Power. Cheers. Ready,